Hello, everybody, and welcome back to your favorite podcast, Operation History, a podcast where history is more than what you remembered. Welcome to October, everybody. Tonight, the digital table is filled. We have four hosts tonight. We have Derek. Hello, hello. We have Lauren. Hi. We have Maria. Hello, everyone. And David is also here. But Today's episode, it covers the Hungarian Revolution of 1956. And if we're talking about Hungary, that means we have to have a guest on. This guest specializes in everything Hungarian. And his laugh is infectious. Please give a warm welcome to Professor Benzinger. <laughs> Thank you very much. Thank you. Um, so um, tomorrow, October 23rd, 2021, is the 65th anniversary of the Hungarian Revolution. I'll get to the importance of, of October 22nd in just a moment, but let me just, you know, uh, let's talk about this just for a moment. Um, the revolution, right, or the War of Independence, as Hungarians call it, represented an overwhelming repudiation of the Soviet system by the Hungarian people. It represents one of the great moments when the legitimacy of rational legal democracy or uh, the liberal republic, you know, as a legitimizing force, right, uh, um, uh, undergirded the national aspirations of a, of a people. The event ended in failure, but it stands to this day as a beacon of hope and courage to those yearning to breathe free. Um, and it, 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 it should have great relevance, um, and, and we'll, we'll talk about that, uh, uh, to young people. And as, especially, you know, in, in you know today where we um, uh, we've had an attempted coup d'état in the United States, um, an assertion of the legitimacy of authoritarian rule in places like Poland and currently, unfortunately, uh, in Hungary itself, um, Turkey. And so um, uh, this is this is an event that we really should pay attention to. Uh, lasted, it was short-lived, October 23rd through November 11th. Uh, the Soviet Union, the Soviet forces that were repelled repeatedly by Hungarian uh, fighters, freedom fighters, real freedom fighters, right? Uh, um, killed 669 Soviets, approximately 14, uh, 1,450 were wounded, 51 were missing. For Hungarians, uh, it's a real rough estimate at best, right? We know at least 2,700 were killed, you know, 27,000 injured. But we, these are rough estimates because we really don't know. Um, uh, people were executed on the street when the Soviets okay. advanced. They shot uh, and killed wounded uh, uh, Hungarians uh, and so forth. We don't know the exact figures uh, um, of, of people killed or injured in the countryside. This was a, a complete revolution, right? So that you know, uh, the sociologist Emil Durkheim talks about the idea of effervescence and so forth, right? So imagine a champagne bottle, right, being shaken, and then you pop the cork and boom, out comes the champagne, right? And uh, um, this is what happened in Hungary, right? So um, uh, this anger and anguish was released all right, on October 23rd. And it was very much a complete revolution, both in Budapest and the provincial cities and so forth, but in at, right down to the village level, right? Right down to the village level. People expressed their outrage uh, at the Soviet occupation, their outrage at authoritarian rule and, and so on. 200,000 Hungarians left the country 
all right? And this is in a, a, a country with a population of approximately 9 million, right? That's rather substantial. In the terror that was initiated after the event uh, as part of the Soviet-backed Hungarian government's demobilization policy, over 13,000 Hungarians were placed in internment camps. And many of them sat there for five to six years. 300, at least 350 people were executed for their role in the revolution. And close to 100,000 Hungarians were affected in one way or another through losing their jobs, um, losing their homes and so forth, being surveilled by the police. So it was, uh, it was an, an, an overwhelming show of force by the state, but it ensured, right, this kind of repression ensured that this event, right, was going to uh, live on in the consciousness of the Hungarian people. Not all. There were those who benefited from the Stalinist system, and there were those who benefited from the second system of, uh, uh, of, of communist governance. But we'll see that the, the revolution greatly changed that second version uh, uh, of, of, of governance and so forth. But let's move for a moment now to October 22nd and really to October 16th, when Hungarian students at the University of Szeged formed an independent student organization. You know, the revolution highlights students um, like you and, 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 and should be inspiring to students like you, because they're the ones who generated the ideas, right? And basically told an older generation to wake up, right? To wake up and take action, which is something that we have to do now. It's, it's, we, we have to rely on our young people, right? To um, here in the United States and attempt, imagine an attempted coup d'etat, the Confederate battle flag carried inside the capital of the United States. That had never happened ever, right? Until January 6, 2021. Something is desperately wrong when a large number of American people believe lies. And someone who would uh, mimic Adolf Hitler, who talked about the big lie, repeated often enough that people would believe it. Young people are essential uh, to, uh, to politics in, in the United States. We learned lessons from history, right? And the Hungarian Revolution is a good one to pay attention to, right? Because it's young people uh, who are the generators of, of change and, and did and did create change, at least for, uh, for, for a moment, right? For a moment, uh, uh, created something of what could be, what could be this great moment of hope. Okay, so the Hungarian Revolution of 1956. So on October 22nd, the idea of an independent student organization caught fire amongst other university students. And so in Budapest, you had a meeting from students from Seged, from Debrecen, from the Economics University, from Utvush Lorand in Budapest itself, from, you know, from all over the country gathered together to discuss what the platform, what changes they were demanding. And the changes that they were demanding had to do with the national situation at hand, all right, with Stalinists that were still in power and what to do with them and who should replace them. 
but they also mimicked the demands of the great 1848 revolution, which also ended in failure, unfortunately, but demanded a liberal republic, liberal republic, rational legal law as we know it, right? The demand for freedom to assemble, free speech, a multi-party system, and so forth, right? And they sent these 16 points out to workers' councils, workers, factory workers, and so forth. And the replies came back were overwhelmingly in support of the students. For example, in Mischkoltz, the Mischkoltz Workers' Council sent their reply back saying, we are in line and we support the most radical of your, uh, of your uh, demands, and so forth. And so the students decided that they would march on October 23rd, which they're doing right here in the streets, shouting, Oros Haza, Russians, go home, and demanding that, uh, that these 16 points be read over the radio. The government, which was run by Stalinists at this point, had seemingly acceded to their demands on the 22nd, but then on the 23rd revoked the, uh, their, they said, nope, you can't march and you can't read your demands over the radio. But you're students and you know exactly what you did. You got right into the streets and marched. And the students marched to two locations. This is the one in Buda. And this is the statue of Bem, right? Who was a Polish general and a, 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 a major figure in the 1848 revolution and so forth. And here are students from Utrecht Lorand uh, University. There they are gathered around the monument and, and they're joined by the people of Budapest, right? The people of Budapest came out into the streets to join them. And the speeches became more radical. They read their demands and so forth. And then this symbol, which is known as the Stalinist Rakoshi symbol, Matyas Rakoshi was the, uh, was the premier Stalinist, Hungarian Stalinist, and so forth, right? This was their flag, and look what they did to it. Okay, a real act of re revolution. They ripped the center out from under it, and that was became, right, the banner and the symbol of the Hungarian revolution. As time went on, they returned to the symbol of the, of what was known as the, the Koshut, Koshut symbol of the Republic of 1848-1849, which was the royal symbol with the crown taken off, right, to represent that this was rational legal democracy, that Hungary was no longer a monarchy or appealing to uh, monarchist uh, sentiments and so forth. The Hungarian people rallied at the parliament with the students and called for Imre Noj, and I'll talk about him in just a moment, to come and, and take power. The, the, the Stalinists understood that, that Imre Noj had to be returned to power uh, because all of Budapest was out in the streets. And earlier that day, the people of Debrecen, which is another smaller city in Eastern Hungary that has a university in it, had gathered and the police had gunned down two of the students and so forth, which only further radicalized the crowd. Now, Imre Noj came out and addressed the crowd and said, my dear comrades, and the crowd shouted him down, no more comrades. And so he said, my dear citizens, and they said, that's better. But 
he wasn't really with the crowd at that moment. None of the uh, communists really understood the significance of these crowds and what was happening throughout Hungary. And they still said that the students couldn't read their demands over the radio and so forth. And so the students stormed the radio station and police officers and national guardsmen that had been sent to thwart the uh, students from reading their demands gave them their weapons. A secret service, the um, guy from the Abeha, the Hungarian secret service, came out onto a balcony with a machine pistol and shot into the crowd, killing one of the students. And that only enraged the students and they stormed the building and took the radio station over. And so it was, it was, it was really quick. And at the same time as the students were storming the radio, uh, the students went after a, a, a colossus statue of Joseph Stalin you know, attacking the cult of personality and pulling that down. And so why were they so angry, right? Why were they so angry? Well, what had happened between 1948 and uh, 1953 had been a brutal period of Stalinization, right? The Republic of Hungary that had been uh, uh, voted democratically under Soviet occupation was uh, destroyed right, uh, uh, really between uh, 1948 and 1949. And what followed was a brutal, a period of brutal repression uh, in which uh, uh, peasants, <laughs> you know, the, the regime went after peasants, it went after people in their own party, and so forth. For example, between 1950 and 1953, 650,000 cases were brought against the Hungarian people, resulting in 387,000 negative judgments against, uh, uh, against Hungarians. Now, many of these were just minor, minor, but, but some of them meant, you know, uh, exile into the countryside, exile out of your home. There were over 350 people executed. And of those, many um, uh, uh, came from these show trials and, and, and so forth that were staged by the uh, Stalinist to, um, to make sure that everybody knew that it wasn't just a common peasant or, uh, or just the ordinary Joe that the government could go after and surveil, but it could be people within the government itself. And among those people, and I'll make this quick, was a guy by the name of Laszlo Reich, who wasn't part of the Moscow clique that, uh, that formed the core of the uh, Stalinist government. And this, and, and, and this guy, Laszlo Reich, was, uh, um, he actually had fought against uh, uh, the Hungarian fascists and so forth, but he wasn't part of the Moscow clique. And he, they decided he would provide a perfect target for the show trial to show the power of the state, right? And he, um, he was the interior minister, and he was one of the founders, one of the guys who created the Hungarian Secret Service, the Aveha. The Aveha, the Secret Service, took over the headquarters that the Gestapo had used during World War II. And um, two of my favorite writers, Shandor uh, Marai and George Faludi, uh, in, in, in books that they wrote remembering this period, said that, you know, Many of the people that used to work for the Gestapo, you know, the wonderful sadists and so forth that you need to torture people and so forth, suddenly they were back, but in new uniforms. 
whoa, you're back again. You know, thank God. You know, you, you know. I, I mean, if you're into sadism, you would have loved uh, um, the Abeha headquarters and so forth, right? Anyways, Laszlo Reich gets invited to dinner, right, uh, by the Matyash Rakoshi, the head of the Hungarian Stalinist Communist Party, right? And uh, um, you know, and so they have a really great dinner and so forth. He gets driven home. You know, he and his wife go off to bed, they put their baby asleep, and then around midnight, or you know, oh, who's at the door? It's the Aveha, right? The people that <laughs> well, the next thing you know, both he and his wife are in prison and so forth. And actually, uh Laszlo Reich is 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 held in a um, cell at Andrashi Ud at the Aveha headquarters and so forth. And um the uh, their baby is taken away and so forth, right? And the next thing you know, these sadists are down in his cell and so forth, you know, beating him to a pulp. And on top of that, the godfather of his child comes down and I'm going to beat the living God out of you, you know. And so pretty soon, this guy is, you know, he's jello, you know, after several months of this, you know, then the same guy, Janos Kadar, who was uh, uh, the, the godfather of uh, Reich's son, comes down, say, Lotsy, you're not looking so good. You know, <laughs> you, how about a sandwich? How about some cigarettes? You know, the guy's. And uh, um, anyways, he becomes the victim, along with several others, in, in the first show trial uh, in, in 1949. And he's told that say, listen, you know, we're going to, you know, you're going to get sentenced to death after you confess, you know, that you're, you know, going to sell Hungary out to the Yugoslavs and so forth. And that's a story for another time that that's just, it's an incredible story of these show trials and so forth. But you know what, after we sentence you to death, we're going to ship you off to Moscow. And when the time's right, you got to come back and everything's going to be great. Well, Anyways, fast forward to, you know, to October 1949, he's uh, woken up early in the morning and out into the courtyard and to a scaffold he's led and uh, um, <laughs> Hungarians have a, a, a it, it's probably fast, but it's an awful sort of thing, you know, they, they uh, strap you up against a pole with your, you know, head tied up in a, you know, in a noose, and then they yeah, your feet are secured and then you're, you're, you're pulled flat against the, the pole. And then the guy climbs up on a ladder and screws your head off and, and uh, uh, you know, breaks your neck and so on. You know, there you are. But they do this. They're having a big breakfast. They're having, you know, palinka, Hungarian brandy, great beer, you know, sausage, you know, all sorts of good, good things to eat. The uh, apparently Janos Kadar, again, you know, Reich's godfather to his son was present because he was going to become, you know, take over Reich's position, right? He throws up. <laughs> and not too long after that, he himself gets imprisoned. The Hungarians, right, after they executed uh, Laszlo Reich, um, they, you know, they, they, they just, uh, um, they, there wasn't a proper burial. His son, you know, his wife didn't know where he was buried. She couldn't perform any kind of memorial for her husband. Hungarians, um, as I told you, um, the, the repression inside Hungary is horrific. So by 1953, even the Soviets are saying, you know, this is creating, this is destabilizing politics uh, in, in, in Hungary. And uh, um, so we need a change, right? Somehow we need a change. And 
our dear friend Joseph Stalin dies, right, which provides an opportunity for a new regime under Nikita Khrushchev. And so with that new regime, he decides that um, maybe we need to de-Stalinize Hungary. And so that's where this guy comes in, Imre Nagy, all right? And Imre Nagy was, you know, just as Lassel Reich had created the Abeha, Imre Nagy was part of the Moscow, you know, coalition. When he was in Moscow, he ratted on his friends and they were, you know, got the, you know, let's go down to the basement and have a bolt in the back of our neck treatment, right? On top of that, he's, you know, he helped to dismantle uh, that short-lived republic between 1945-1948. He had survived, you know, the show trials and so forth. So he, you know, he didn't raise his hand and say, hey, you know, uh, wasn't Laszlo Reich one of us? And so, you know, nothing like that. But anyways, he institutes what is known as the new economic mechanism. And he slows down collectivization and heavy industry and so forth and makes life better for peasants. He releases some of the political prisoners, including Janos Kada and so forth out of prison. And importantly, and importantly, he allows for critique of the single party system. You wouldn't like critique, you wouldn't like the single party system, but at least now there could be critique. So to make a long story short, he is, the, the Stalinists hate him, right? Because he's spoiling all their fun. You know, I, I wanted a, you know, authoritarian state. I wanted, you know, a totalitarian state like Stalin and you're, you know, anyways, they, they do everything they can to not cooperate with him. And it winds, ulti- winds up ultimately in, in Nodge being dismissed and actually kicked out of the Communist Party. But, okay, the cat was out of the bag, right? And so when Matyash Rakoshi comes back into power in 1955, he can't get the Hungarians to stop critiquing. They begin making jokes about him and actually, you know, yelling at him and doing all sorts of nasty things that they couldn't do under his first rule. He's not, he's not able to rule. And his wife, who's out of prison at this point, demands for the remains of her husband to be resurfaced, right? And, and Hungarians, um, again, are deeply, part of their ethos is about memorial, right? And, and, about, the, and about community and so forth. And so to bury someone and not to recognize the burial is taboo. And so this demand for reburial catches fire. And now I'm going to connect everything back to 1848 and revolution. On October 6th, the state says, okay, we're going to rebury. We've got the remains, uh, you know, and so we're going to rebury Laszlo Reich and several of the folks that were executed with him in that first show trial and so forth. And they say, we're going to have a funeral, but Hungarians, you can't come. Well, they came anyways. Over 100,000 of them showed up at the funeral. And as the historian Charles Gatti said, it was on October 6th that I experienced the revolution of the mind, right? The revolution of the mind. And, and, and so that I, I, I became free because the, these former Stalinists that, who did all this damage, you know, were saying, you know, Shol Hashem, never again. We'll never do something like this again. And, and so forth. 
did they mean it? The answer is no. But it's it's it it was that funeral in October 6th that in many ways probably helped inspire students to move their parents and the older generation to do the right thing. So that if we could go back to Emory Nodge, the students between this period and October 23rd transformed Imre Nodge, who was not part of their, really part of the first part of the revolution. He was, he was a communist, right? And he believed in single party democracy, not multi-party democracy, which is what they were demanding. And yet they said, we want Imre Nodge back. And they transformed him into the spirit of 1848. So the fighting inside uh, Budapest, right, um, is intense, all right? And Hungarians begin capturing Soviet tanks. Um, they use Molotov cocktails, improvised explosive devices and so forth. They use any means possible to drive the Russians back. The, the first wave of fighting, which is bitter and hard, you know, again, you can see the kind of destruction from machine gun fire and, and so forth. The destruction is, 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 is enormous. There were a lot of tanks with charred bodies of Soviets inside them. So the Hungarians, right, the Hungarian people, um, there are a number of, of moments that, you know, one could remember. On October 25th, in front of the parliament, there were a, an assembly of about 10 to 20,000 people. The secret police and the Soviets decided they'd fire on the crowd. It's called the massacre of October 25th. And they killed between 60 and 80 people, wounded between 100 and 150 folks. And it really, if you were undecided whether you're going to join the revolution or not, it, that was one of the convincers, right? One of those uh, convincing moments. The Hungarian people turned on the Aveha headquarters, on the headquarters of the, uh, the uh, MSP and so forth. People who were, um, they, they lynched. Uh, if they found Abeha people walking around, they were lynched. So it was, it was really, uh, um, you know, the anger, the pent up anger, um, you know, it was, was unceasing. And then I told you, this is uh, what happened to Stalin uh, at the end of that evening on October 23rd. And you can see what they've renamed Stalin there right on his head, bait say, and water closet, right? You know what you do in the water closet. Wonderful colleague, Janos Reiner, has the boot in his office of, of, of Stalin. Uh, but they rip this thing into pieces, right? The workers and, and so forth, and drag it around, you know, drag it around in parts of Budapest. But again, the, the, the anger uh, that the Hungarian people had uh, for the Stalinist government, but also for the, 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 uh, the brutality, the inefficiency of, quote, single-party democracy. And Imre Nagy ultimately understood, you know, the, with the events of, of October 25th, by October 26th, he promises a new government to the Hungarian people. And the new government is declared on October 28th. And finally, finally, on the 30th, he declares the end of the single party system and you have multi-party uh, democracy restored and, and Hungary is restored as a republic, right? As a republic. The current prime minister of Hungary, Viktor Orban, has called for the establishment of an illiberal republic. 
And this was not an illiberal revolution. And so um, uh, again, one of the things I think we need to remember on the 65th anniversary of the revolution, that this was a liberal revolution, a demand for a liberal republic and rational legal law. This was not about single party politics or uh, you know, one party dominating everybody else and so forth. Um, this was about the, the Hungarians wanted multi-party democracy, multi-party democracy. The ending was, was, was horrible. Imre Nagy declared neutrality. The United States, Dwight Eisenhower had already indicated uh, through the UN to uh, Soviet counterparts that the um, United States was not going to disturb uh, how the uh, Soviets decided to handle uh, this revolution. The world itself, in many stud other students joined in solidarity with, with the Hungarians, Red Cross aid packages and so forth. Unfortunately, this event coincided with the um, crisis at the Suez Canal, where you have France and uh, uh, England uh, and Israel seizing control of the, attempting to seize control of the Suez Canal, setting off an international uh, crisis. It provided, you know, Khrushchev with the perfect opportunity to uh, brutally crush this revolution, which he did. On November 1st, Ferry Hatch Airport, Budapest Airport, and most of the airports in, in Hungary were surrounded, even though planes were still landing with uh, relief aid and so forth, they were surrounded by uh, Soviet forces. Uh, you have uh, brand new divisions that were being sent from the Soviet Union into Hungary that were on their way November 1st. On November 2nd, a Hungarian delegation that was negotiating a ceasefire with the, uh, with the Soviets are arrested. And on November 3rd, uh, uh, the Soviets surround principal cities and towns of Hungary, and they make their move on the evening of November 3rd, 4th uh, into, uh, into Budapest. The fighting, again, is severe, but, it, but, the, but, the, but the forces without outside aid, of course, they, they didn't have, you know, <laughs> big fighters, yeah, uh, and they didn't have the kind of equipment that one would need to uh, repel the Soviets. And so there is Bela Kirai, who was the commander of the uh, National Guard fought a rear guard action out of Hungary, um, utilizing anti-aircraft uh, weapons and so forth to sort of keep the, the Soviets at bay and, and amazingly escapes out of Hungary along, as I said, 200,000 people uh, leave. But it's over by, it's over by November 11th. And so I've already talked about the absolutely brutal demobilization of the uh, of the uh, of the revolution. Uh, Imre Nagy, who flees to the Yugoslav embassy in November, is uh, promised safe passage to Yugoslavia, and instead is uh, uh, arrested by the Soviets. And he and his entourage are taken to Romania to Snugov. And then, when he refuses. <laughs> To, uh, uh, to recognize the Soviet-backed government of Janusz Kadar is brought back to Budapest. The pictures of Imre Nagy in 1958 at his trial demonstrate, you know, he, he, he's emaciated uh, and so forth. But he dies, right, on June 16th, 1958, proclaiming that Hungarian Communist Party itself will um, recognize the righteousness of the revolution and of the actions that he took. 
He never uh, denied the, um, he stayed with the revolutionaries and the legitimacy of the revolution uh, right to the very end. As Otto Schandorfi, who had been a victim of uh, Rakoshi's terror and so forth, and a parliamentarian who I had the good fortune to uh, meet and interview, said that really when Nodge joined the revolution, which you can really date to uh, the 26th when he promises new government, he decided to become Hungarian. He decided to become Hungarian. And, uh, and, and he is, along with those who were executed and, uh, and so forth, is what Hungarians would call a ver tanu, or a blood witness, a martyr, uh, to the Hungarian cause for freedom. And it is his memory. It's his memory, sort of in a, in a strange way, like Laszlo Reich, except that Laszlo Reich didn't join uh, with the revolution. Imre Nagy did. Imre Nagy did. And it was the demand for his remains and the demand that for a funeral and so forth, right, that put the final nail in the coffin of the uh, uh, Hungarian Socialist Workers Party and, and authoritarianism uh, in Hungary, because they were forced to allow for a funeral, a public funeral of Imre Nagy on June 16th, 1989. And by doing so, then what had happened to Imre Nagy, if he was being honored as a martyr and as a hero, then those who had, who had sentenced him to death had committed juridical murder and, and they were delegitimized. And that, and that gave way, right? Hungarians, hundreds of thousands of Hungarians came to his funeral. And that was enough coupled with a referendum that delegitimized the Hungarian Socialist Workers Party. It, it stripped them of their finances, stripped them of their militia and so forth and ushered in the Republic of Hungary. And that's the story of, of the 1956 revolution. And, and now it stands in precarious balance, as does the United States. Hungary will have an election um, in uh, uh, April. And, uh, and again, uh, will, will it be possible? Will the current coalition of left and right parties be able to uh, topple the authoritarians? One of the people who was at the funeral of Imre Nagy was Viktor Orban. And at that time, he sided and, and wanted to resurrect Imre Nagy. Only recently, he consigned uh, Imre Nagy's statue that was erected in his honor outside of parliament to, uh, you know, sort of sidelined him and, and in a sense is burying, reburying uh, Imre Nagy. And most certainly with his assertion of authoritarian, illiberal politics, is burying the legacy of 1956 and 1948. And why don't I stop there? You've heard enough of me. And uh, um, so. Wowzers. I didn't know any of that. <laughs> <laughs> Speaking of Victor, because I know you've done work in Hungary mm -hmm. by looking at their education, how the state, you know, showcases different events in Hungarian history in their history books. How does Victor portray this event in their state curriculum? So that the prior to 1989, the event was taught as a counter-revolution. And the state actually guarded monuments <laughs> associated with the 1848 revolution that were standing and were centrums of the 
students, you know, these, these large protests and so forth. And so in a sense, the state kept the memory alive through its negative interpretation of these events and created a dual conversation in which what you said publicly was different than what you would say at home about the legitimacy of the revolution. So for Viktor Orban, it's a difficult path to toe because he wants to legitimize the regime of Miklos Horty, which was uh, the World War II uh, regime that had allied itself with uh, Nazi Germany, the Axis powers, and so forth. Why? Because those Germany and Italy and so forth had um, given Hungary territory back that they associated with the 19th century version of the Hungarian kingdom. And that kingdom reminded people, though it was mythic in nature, of the great Hungarian kingdom, the, the medieval kingdom, and so forth. So it's sort of like the once and future king. Orban wants to do is utilize those symbols of monarchy to legitimize his authoritarian, right, illiberal politics, uh, and so on. And so in this light, Imre Nagy and the revolution create a real headache. But that had been solved before by Miklos Horty and by the two communist regimes who all celebrated the 1848 revolution. And, you know, but what they did for the Stalinists, uh, the 1848 revolution, well, Joseph Stalin became the apotheosis of that revolution, right? And, and so, you know, it, it, and, and uh, you know, this was just part of a, a logical development to, you know, totalitarian rule. <laughs> With Orban, what he does in, 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 in all instances, Miklos Horty uh, lionized the 1848 uh, revolutionaries, but what he lionized was the heroism, the courage, right? The fight against all odds, right? And that's what the um, Stalinists did. And that's what I bet when you, if you listen to Orban's speech tomorrow on the 23rd, uh, or sorry, on the 65th anniversary, he'll focus on the heroism. He'll focus on the the, uh, the Saint Suhans, the, the young freedom fighters, right? Children uh, at the time of the revolution, some of whom were executed then by, uh, by the regime, fighting for heroism, fighting for the Hungarian nation. But that's where it stops. So he's not going to emphasize, uh, he, what is de-emphasized is that the revolution was a liberal, a, a demand for a liberal republic and so forth. He'll, he'll tell you that this is simply a different kind of democracy. He calls his illiberal democracy, he uses the term democracy, right? So that's what the, you know, that's what the Hungarians were fighting for and, and de-emphasizing multi-party democracy and so forth and freedom of the press and so on. He'll tell you, I mean, Orban will tell you, oh, well, we have a free press. It's just controlled by everybody who supports Viktor Orban, right? They don't go around arresting people and so forth, but they just sideline them or ignore them and so forth. Uh, the laws, you can live a comfortable life if you have the money to do so. Not, ever, not a whole lot of folks uh, uh, do. If you have a university you know, education and so forth, um, you can get good schooling and so forth, David, but, you, but what is, what is de-emphasized is, is, is rational legal law and, and, and liberalism, liberal republic as you would think of in the 18th century terms. Hey, so, Maria. Hi. 
So one thing I want to jump in with is I know there's been a lot of pushback from the EU because of these anti-liberal uh, these anti-liberal views that they've had. And I know they've gotten in a lot of hot water with the EU. Is there anything you want to shed light on that? Yeah, I mean, the, the EU, um, the, the modernization that you see in Budapest, for example, their metro system was literally paid for by the EU. At least half of those funds uh, were paid for. Um, at one at one. At one point, not not to jump in and cut you off, but at one point, no, but, didn't hung, Hungary declare bankruptcy and the EU bailed them out, which is part of the reason for this like anti-liberal pushback? Well, Greece, Greece uh, actually did, you know, and, 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 and the EU in every way did bail out Hungary and, and Poland. The problem is, is, is corruption is so rampant. The way Orban got in was because of the corruption within the Socialist Party. Um, but his party is just as corrupt. And a lot of EU funding, um, instead of going for infrastructure, for social programs and so forth, he's, uh, he's built, you know, he's spent an enormous amount of those funds building soccer stadiums. Friends, uh, uh, contracts to, you know, that, that are made with EU money go to his friends and, and, and so forth. And so that there's, a, um, he's created a, an absolutely remarkable patron-client system, which just as you said, is out in the open and it, it, it infuriates um, uh, people within the EU. And uh, Poland is, is being sanctioned. Hungary is being sanctioned as well with, by the withholding of, of COVID uh, relief funds. Poland, I believe, is going to um, get sanctioned even more for uh, its open defiance of, of EU law. And I think that this is meant as pedagogy for Hungary in terms of the kinds of sanctions that the that the EU seems to be uh, much more willing uh, to enact. Because I think they've seen this drift, Orban encouraging Poland, Poland encouraging Hungary to defy the EU. What they would do is, is basically, uh, you know, kind of like <laughs> you know, the Confederates, you know, in asserting states' rights, sort of like Texas right now, states' rights, you know. But but Hungary and Poland are asserting national law over the supremacy of EU law, which would, if that were to happen, that would break up the uh, the EU. And so that that uh, the sanctions, I think, can be monetary, and I think there will be sanctions level leveled against Poland. And so it'll remain to be seen if that also happens for, uh, for Hungary. The people in Poland overwhelmingly want to remain within the EU. And I would say that the same is true for, for Hungarians. So that there's a real, there's a real political cost that, that, would, that, would go, that goes along with this. But for the past uh, three elections, uh, they, they are not fair. I mean, the gerrymandering, gathering voters who don't even speak Hungarian from <laughs> the Ukraine and others, <laughs> that creates major, uh, major problems uh, with the legitimacy of the, of, of the government. Uh, I actually have a little two-pronged question for you. You had spoke earlier about young people as generators of change. Do you believe still that modern day uh, young people are still this generator, the major generators of change? And if so, how do you think that they can go about 
enacting change that would shift things away from things like we were talking about with the January 6th insurrection? Well, I think, you know, one of the more inspiring moments in the run-up to the election was the uh, mass demonstration that we had here in uh, Providence, where over 10,000 people came out. And it was my, my daughter, I was, I was scared to death COVID, and, uh, um, but I was so angry, and my daughter's passion was such that I, I felt that I absolutely had to um, go out into the streets as well. And there I saw young people uh, making some very cogent arguments about the kinds of change that needs to uh, that needed that needs to take place here in the United States, let alone right here in Rhode Island. I think the one of the most tangible things that someone can do is to vote and to um, and to persuade others to go out and do it, and to shame people that are not doing that, to shame older people that are uh, are, are sitting on their hands, and and uh, tell them to get off their blank and uh, um, and stand up for what's right. There's morality to this, and you know the the. And, and this is true in Hungary as well. There are, there, there are young people and folks who are, 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 are truly angry and, and, and motivated. And, and I, I hope uh, in the same way that the right wing here in, Hung or in the United States finds exemplars of, of illiberal politics that they, that they seem to learn from over in Hungary and in Poland, I would hope that, the, that, that young people, it's my fervent hope that young people would communicate with each other and uh, um, and take inspiration from each other and uh, um, and strategize with each other to uh, to insist on change to insist that adults behave like adults. Um, you know that's not what happened on on, on January sixth. Uh, to 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 believe in superstition. You know at, at that at, at that level, extraordinarily frightening. And that's why I, I believe that young people are the are the great reservoir of reason and, and therefore the great reservoir of what, what could be of the change that could take place. You know, and, and I, you know, again, my perspective probably comes through, but I, I you know, I really believe in multi-party democracy and good, you know, informed debate, but, you know, underlining informed. Um, and and I think that the fifty six revolution is 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 something that if we reflect on it and we re and 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 think about it, it's it, it we should take great inspiration from that. So those 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 folks who were executed, um, those people people who are still living, you know, they they can tell you about those those days and so forth. But they they should give us uh, inspiration to act. Agreed. With Hungary moving away from the UN a little bit with the sanctions and their rhetoric and all that, do you think they're trying to position themselves to be closer aligned to Putin and Russia and the state that they're going in today? Or do you think Hungary's just trying to do whatever to make, you know, to keep Hungary ahead? If that makes well, any sense. Vladimir Putin is more than happy to accommodate uh, a Viktor Orban, and I mean, it, it, the, the the Russians have been active in, in in supporting this illiberal project, and so um, that's that that again is just uh, uh, you know an extraordinary you know paradox that here's uh, here we have the Hungarian Revolution Orosaza, and then here's somebody who's you know idolizing Vladimir Putin because he's an authoritarian, you know Erdogan. Same thing, you know the you know this close relationship 
with authoritarians. And um, in many ways, people who subscribe to the illiberal democracy of Orban want to have it both ways. They want the EU funding, but at the same time, they want to have illiberal politics. And they, they, are, they undermine, I mean, it, it, it's a very, very sad situation today. And the influence that the PRC also has in, in, in Hungary is, uh, I think it's a real stain on the memory of the 1956 revolution in every way, because that's not the kind of politics uh, that, that folks wanted um, <laughs> in the 50s or, or, in, or, or the hopefulness of, of 1989. Um, I'm just listening. I'm like sponging all of this in. <laughs> yeah, same, I'm stuck I'm... in like 400 years ago, New England. So it's so interesting. <laughs> the more things change, the more they stay the same, unfortunately. Well, yeah, that's right. I mean, I, I teach a course, um, History 107, called Witches, Aliens, and Other Enemies. And, uh, um, oh, I love and that. So that we, we, <laughs> we look at, at, at fear and panic and superstition as historical contingencies, right? You know, you think of the Puritans and, and the, 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 the world that you are recreating as a public historian, Lauren, I, I mean, which I think is, is really great. But the, you know, you think of the world, the Puritans, the, the, they felt themselves surrounded by indigenous peoples who were in league with Satan because how come they didn't know about, you know, Christianity and so forth. And, and then that coupled with the struggle for empire, which they, they, they couldn't grapple with, you know, and, and so, and, and, and the fact the charter that they had, you know, that, that, you know, allowed them to establish the Massachusetts Bay Colony was largely a commercial charter, you know, where, you know, say you're not supposed to be hanging Quakers who are also, you know, you know or other business people who, you know, but, <laughs> you know, and, you know, ultimately winding up in the, the Salem witch hysteria mm -hmm. and so forth. And, Again, you know, this is this raises another problem that my students and I, you know, try and get at at least a little bit is is what would it be? You know, here they hang like uh, you know Rebecca Nurse. I think she was in her seventies and mm -hmm. was this devout woman, and then they accuse her of witchcraft, and the Nurse family has to watch as Grandma and you know is is getting strangled to death on a gibbet, and then afterwards it's like whoops we made a mistake you know and then you have these people like you know how do you live with with you know this the, in in the, you know how how do you live with people you know next door neighbors and in hungary this is uh to be fair there are um, people who actively participated in the revolution and at the same time those who participated in in subduing the revolution. How do you live with that? And then there's that larger legacy in, in the background of the, you know, the Holocaust. The Hungarian genocide was the fastest and one of the largest carried out during uh, uh, World War II, and not just by the Germans, but by 200,000 Hungarians who helped them do it. The furies that are unleashed when you, when you try to break up the rule of law um, is really disconcerting. It's hard to to put authoritarianism back in the bottle, you know, once you, once you've unleashed it. And I think that's true here in the United States as well. You, if you legitimize unreason, right? Which a lot of authoritarian, if you if you think of the philosophy of authoritarianism, 
and so forth and, and, and denying people rights and so forth. If, if you begin to legitimize that, um, it somehow becomes the truth. And uh, that's what I'm so fearful of here in the United States. I mean, we've, we've been there before, you know, in Salem. We've been there before with the McCarthy witch hunts and so forth, the, you know, the first and the second Red Scare and so forth. Um, we, we've done this. We have lynched fellow citizens. And in, in Hungary, you know, the question, one of the questions I'm wondering and, and I'm going to study and, and write about while I'm on sabbatical next semester is, is, is just that, you know, can, is it possible to even unseat a, a Viktor Orban, you know, when once, once these forces and, 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 you know, and people that, well, that's been, you know, <laughs> it's a tradition, you know, it's been going on since 2010. So at this point, there are people that have been born that are eligible to vote that have known no other system except the Victor Orban system. And, you know, that was true in 1989, you know, people had lived under, you know, under Kadar from, you know, 1956 up to, uh, you know, when he was removed and then one of his pals was put in his place in 1988, 1989. My wife, who is an older, I, we're both 1956ers. And, uh, um, but when she was, uh, uh, when her mom, when, when, when she was brought from the hospital with her baby, uh, she was born on, on November 11th. And my father-in-law, vivid, late father-in-law now, but vividly remembers that a tank you know, the turret turned as they were bringing the, you know, the baby, your Clara into the hospital to give birth and followed them right to the door. And she was born into an authoritarian system and so forth. And, uh, you know, so it, 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 it just, uh, that, that legacy, her parents never joined the communist party. And, and she's one of many whose parents would talk to her about the revolution and about politics at home, but never outside never outside um, you know what's weird and fascinating is that orban's hungry now when we're there we talk about you know if, if somebody's a, an urbanite <laughs> we talk about paprika we talk about uh, you know music we talk about children don't talk about politics and in hungary under kadar after the terror he ultimately offered a an, an amnesty and Hungary became known as the happiest barracks in the satellite system. And as a friend of mine who had been mayor of Seged uh, back in the, the pre-1989 said, well, you know, it, in that time in Hungary, everybody could have two bottles of wine. There were no bread lines. So unlike, unlike the Soviet Union, unlike Poland, there were these little things that Hungarians could have. You could crack jokes about Janos Kada. But what you couldn't do was say the names of the people. Uh, you couldn't say Imre Nagy's name out loud. You couldn't talk about those kinds of politics seriously uh, and so forth. And people were beaten if they did. Finally, that demand for memorial, um, uh, that was a real powerful force. Um, and, and, and that was something people, parents whose children, loved ones, whose children had been executed, um, another form of protest was to flower or try to find the grave, recognize the grave in this plot in, uh, in the public cemetery 
uh, in Budapest in plot 401 to try and figure out where their child was buried so that they could perform deep mourning kedjalat to bring them back into the into the community and so um, that's the other tragedy is you know if you bury history if you attempt to bury history the ghosts are going to come back that's charles lemmert he wrote a book called durkheim's ghost which i recommend to any and everyone but it's it's so true that that if you bury uh the past it won't rest it won't rest uh the truth will out the truth will out and uh, um and so ultimately what orban is doing i think i hope will not succeed because i think that the chains of the ghosts are going to ultimately get too loud and rattle <laughs> and uh, and disturb the living and i i hope that that is i hope that an election is what's going to get rid of these folks but uh but there's another <laughs> there are ghosts chasing them as well <laughs> Well, like one person said, you can't kill an idea. So once an idea is out there, be it good ideas or bad ideas, like you said, the ghosts of the past are you know, going to rattle him and come after him. And maybe the ideas of those ghosts will inspire a proper election. And hopefully, like you said, the yeah. real change comes through. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. So. Okay. So are we doing the, uh, the outro or do we have any last minute things? Before we go, does Dr. Benzinger want to talk about any of his books, any of his credentials? Do you have anything, anything to like plug that? about yourself? Yeah, would you like to plug yourself? <laughs> <laughs> I've had the real good fortune to have the support Hungarian historians and the Fulbright Commission and the Shurosh Foundation. Uh, that enabled me to write a book on Imre Nagy, uh, Martyr of the Nation. Um, and I've, 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 wrote, I've, I've written a, a series of articles uh, about problems of history and memory uh, in Hungary uh, and, 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 and with the support of, of Hungarian scholars. And it's, it's, it's been a, a wonderful thing to have, to, to have had their support. And also Rhode Island College and the history department has, have been just extraordinary in their support of uh, of my research and my uh, and my various projects, um, I should be better at advertising, and I'm I'm not. I'm a, I'm I'm busy. I love to teach, and and I, I love to do I, I I love to do research as well. So I think in on my <laughs> under my under me in the history department, there's a a list of <laughs> publications and so forth. But but my uh, current project is entitled. Uh, from the ashes, or uh, yeah, from the ashes into the flame, uh, hungry and the allure of the illiberal state, and um, so that's 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 what I'm currently working on. And the the school has provided uh, a sabbatical for me to work on that. And uh, uh, once again, the the, the uh, college research uh, committee and so forth has uh, helped me out with uh, with some of the travel and so forth. And, and to that, I'm I'm very grateful. And to my students, um, because it, it it you know um, that's the thing. It's it, it's colleagues and so forth. And and always they have great critique and and questions. But it's but it's through the process of teaching and, and working with my students that my best questions uh, come because oftentimes it's my students that are asking questions and I 
go home and it's like, oh, I should have said this. You know, it's like, you know, it's as that song by the band says, you know, we get to the end and then you want to start all over again, you know, and and uh, um, and that's the beauty it, it, it is that um, uh, uh, teaching is, is very much a two way street and, and research and teaching are inseparable. And uh, um, and one feeds the other, and and so students are are just an extraordinary, extraordinarily important part of that. And so, um, thank you so very much for inviting me. Um, I've, I've enjoyed this, and I um, for anyone watching the blog who's at Rhode Island College, you should join Rick Sess. Um, <laughs> it's a really really great student organization. And, and you'll have a blast. You'll have great parties. There are great field trips and you're going to get great peer review. So if you're a, if you're a student over at Rick or you want to be a student at Rick, you should join Rick Sess and the history department also. Now that's a plug. If I've ever heard I was going to say, can, can we, can we get that and like, like isolate it so we can just play it at our meetings and like, yeah. Oh yeah. Yeah. Can, yeah. can we have so a like, sponsored that, like little yeah. advertisement yeah. every day? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Our, our Do you want me to put a plug in for that. cannibalism or? No, probably not. <laughs> we, it, we've been there. We well, have we, the Jake sound episode. We've been there. <laughs> okay. Been All right. There. Great. Yeah, <laughs> we've gotten weird on here. That's one of the that's one of the weird points. <laughs> no, go ahead, Lauren. I was gonna say last thoughts, comments, complaints. Never a complaint. I didn't know all that. I thought that was extremely interesting and enlightening. Thank you for sharing. If you I haven't you. if you haven't bought his book yet, buy it. Yeah. Yeah, on Amazon. <laughs> <laughs> it's okay. a good read. It's a good read. It's a quick read. It is quick. That's true. Yep. Thank you so much for tuning into this episode. We appreciate all of our listeners' the support that we have received. Please rate, download, review, and subscribe to the show wherever you get your podcast. It is a small and simple thing that you can do to help out the show in a big way. If you'd like to interact with us, there are several ways that you can do so. You can reach us at our Twitter, at Operation Hist, which is very active. Lauren runs it, so you'll be mainly to- in talking to her. You can shoot us an email at our Gmail, operationhistorypodcast at gmail.com, or you can view us on our website, operationhistorypodcast.wordpress.com. All of our sources and show notes from this episode will be uploaded with the episode. This is Operation History, signing off. history has no association with any of the institutions or organizations mentioned in this podcast. The views and expressions of the hosts and guests are theirs and theirs alone and do not represent any academic institutions, organizations, or companies that they currently work for or attend or that they have previously worked for or attended in the past. Thanks for listening and tune in next time for Operation History. Um, okay, so before we actually get started, Maria, I have a pun for you. What is it? Hit me with it. It's a good one. It's a good one. Okay.
what do you call an annoying person from Hungary? What? A Budapest. <laughs> Thank now you. I never met a Budapest. <laughs> <laughs> That was good. All right. That was excellent. Uh, uh, oh, yes. Okay. So, Dave, you want to start us off? How's he doing? I haven't heard that name in a while. He's doing well. Um, he's, uh, um, I think there's going to be a conference. Um, uh, centered on baseball, um, not this year, but um, uh, uh, next year or the year after. And um, and I'm trying to get my organization. Um, I, I I'm I'm on the road to uh, getting a conference together for 2024 for the um, International Society for History Didactics, um, which is run out of the University of Augsburg. Uh, but they would like to come to Providence and uh, asked if uh, Rick would host them. And so. Um, so I'm, I'm looking at that, but um, I, I, I know that that conference is going to take place. And so he'll, um, he will be back. Oh yeah. Listen, no, I, I've loved hanging out with you and, uh, um, and 